0: it's about knowing how to kind of who to talk to how to debrief that and and, and not judge other people for not having been through those things.
1: hi welcome to the WEM podcast i'm Mark Hannaford, the founder of World Extreme Medicine if you're a doctor nurse paramedic in fact any healthcare professional with an adventurous curious mind then this is the podcast for you this morning we're talking to Aaron Kilburn a doctor with absolutely masses of humanitarian deployment experience, primarily with Médecins Sans Frontières. And we're going to be talking to her about her motivations, about the ups and downs of the work that she does, and also how medics wanting to follow a similar career pathway might be able to do so. It's my very great pleasure to introduce to you Erin Gilbert. Erin, It's really, really good to get you on the line, live from Gaza, Um, on your mission with uh, Médecins Sans Frontières. We feel extremely lucky to be able to speak to you, because I know you're really busy over there, and also um, you've got such a busy life going on different missions and your clinical career. But could you give us a a quick five minutes to just talk through your incredible um, career in humanitarian medicine and medicine per se? And let us know a little bit about yourself.
0: Uh, Sure. Hi, Mark. Thanks very much for inviting me to chat to you today. Um, It's an absolute pleasure. Um, So I I feel very blessed to be able to be here. I think um, part of it is a bit of luck and a lot of it's a lot of hard work as well. Um, I've always wanted to work with MSF, so that's one of the driving forces for me to going into medicine in the first place. Um, which is a bit cheesy and it's a bit romantic. This idea that you want to work, you know, with a humanitarian organisation. I think it is something that lots of young doctors and, and medical students really dream about. Um, I uh, I was quite inspired to to do that, you know, kind of even before um, realizing I wanted to be a doctor because I I I've always kind of i was made aware of this organization when i was quite young i was maybe a teenager and i heard about you know the fact that you could combine this uh you know love for travel and, and to helping people by but by being a doctor but also going to interesting places in the world and places where people don't really have access to healthcare. and i think for me one of the the major driving forces is that it's um I'm very aware of how privileged I am, you know, not just because of where I grew up, but also with, you know, my family background, I've got a family who's very supportive of allowing me to go on these crazy missions and go to, you know, places that most people would sort of hesitate to maybe go to. And even at a very young age, I was 17 when I first went uh, left home for an entire year to go to Sri Lanka and work in in a children's orphanage with a small charity. And that, that for me was probably the most formative experience and concretely defining the the next few years for me because it really made me realize that medicine was the path I wanted to follow because I saw a lot of need and I saw that there was something okay well if I'm in this position where I can learn and I can be in a place in the world where you have a really good quality education and um and I can I can take part in that and I can benefit from that then I want to be able to use those skills and that knowledge and and use that in a way that actually provides healthcare to other people and also teaching and training so it's an ongoing thing that you give it's not just that individual care that you offer to individual patients but it's also the support that you give to the other staff that you work with as well and that's that's the beautiful thing so I did um, when I came back from Sri Lanka I started uh, my studies in Glasgow University and throughout that time any chance I got to go and do an adventure I took Uh, so I spent a couple of electives going to India comparing and contrasting the private and um public healthcare systems and that was really you know eye opening i realized like the quality of healthcare in india if you have money is phenomenal and if you don't and if you don't have a good family support system it's not great so you know you're you're really kind of left to your own devices and that's 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 really you know very very difficult um and there's this huge contrast you know in in, in places like that and um I spent some time in Kenya as well um, in my final year of medical school. And that was where I was first kind of confronted with um, people living in, in uh, really, really tough circumstances. Uh, we were working in a project in Kibera, which is one of the biggest slums in that part of the world. And um, it was a sort of charity organization that provided um, a, a clinic and free healthcare for patients with TB and HIV. And they had a small maternity unit there. And we were doing home deliveries of, you know, medicines and food and so on with another organization. And, you know, it's amazing when you see people don't just sort of live and, and get by in these places. They don't just survive, but they can actually thrive. And what really struck me was going into people's homes and bringing them these food parcels. And as soon as you arrive, you know, they it was this sort of humility of, uh, I, I was really humbled, really, because people were very generous. You know, they had so little, and yet the first thing they want to do is, offer you a cup of tea or offer you some food or offer you the one chair that they had in their house you know to sit on and I just thought my goodness it it really puts things into perspective and it's just been accumulation of experiences like that that's really led me to really be where I am today um after medical school I did some tropical medicine studies in Belgium and uh so it's equivalent to the Diploma of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene that you can do in Liverpool or London. So in Antwerp, they have the Institute of Tropical Medicine. Um, and it put me in touch with some really incredible people, and including MSF. Uh, they come and they, they headhunt students that graduate from these organisations because you need to have a little bit of knowledge of these weird and wonderful diseases that you can get in funky places in the world. Um, because it's not just, obviously, everything else that you see in the UK, like diabetes and heart disease and trauma, but that you're going to have all these other communicable diseases on top of that so it's being able to kind of pick out what you're dealing with and sometimes it's multiple things at the same time so it's, it's under it's important to have an understanding of that and then um, and then my path uh, kind of uh, took me towards more towards a sort of expedition medicine world uh, because as I came back from that experience I was thinking about MSF and I knew that I still wasn't in a position to be qualified to go with them I was still a very junior doctor and um, I came and did this expedition wilderness medicine training course in Keswick um, so this would have been in 2011, I think, and um, it put me in touch with uh, Rally International. So I went off with Rally as a expedition medic in Borneo, and um, spent three months with them in the jungles, and that was really good fun. Um, again, a massive learning uh, opportunity, learning about how to kind of prepare for working in kind of resource limited setting. It was about learning how to communicate with the radios, all that kind of stuff, and. You know, like thinking on your feet, working with young people um, and a mix of very privileged kids and also people from less uh, less privileged backgrounds and uh, some people from the low community. So again, this very interesting dynamic and learning to communicate with different people from different environments. Um, and that can be quite challenging, um, even in those kind of circumstances where essentially it's a gap year charity. So it's not like you're, you're dealing with people who are in vital life circumstances, but there can still be major challenges and it's all about, it's all relative, you know, what may seem like a minor thing to you, to a kid who's just left home at the age of 17 and never been abroad before camping in a jungle and coming across leeches and things like that, that's a really big deal. So not minimizing those kind of experiences for them, it's also quite important. But, you know, you learn a lot as you go along. Um, when I came back from that experience, I, um, I got involved with a local emergency department who offered me a chance to work as a clinical fellow with them. And then during the course of that year, I did lots more uh, kind of training and at the end of it all, applied to go with MSF. And so in 2013, I left on my first mission with them, and that was uh, in Haiti as a burns doctor for six months. And then following that, I've done another um, two missions up until this one. I spent six months in CAR in Central African Republic, working in a trauma center and dealing with uh, victims who, were, uh, who had, had various injuries from trauma or surgical emergencies because of the war, but also victims of sexual violence. And that was an incredibly challenging time for me um, in many ways, personally and professionally. And then when I came back from that, um, I spent a bit more time in the NHS, again, going, going through the kind of training things. Um, I've kind of dipped in, in and out of traditional training pathways. Um, but I've allowed myself a bit of flexibility to be able to keep on going along with the humanitarian stuff because it's not really easy to do that within the NHS structures uh, and with the training systems that we have to date. Um, none of the things that you do overseas currently are recognized and count towards your training. There's very few training posts that will give you that opportunity. Um, and it's something I hope that maybe we can change moving forwards because there's so many things that you gain from these experiences that are completely relevant to the work that you do in any healthcare setting. Um then pre- prior to Gaza, I also spent about six, seven weeks in Syria, and that was in 2017. And that was just after the city of Raqqa had been kind of taken back over again and ISIS had been sort of kicked out. There were a lot of refugee camps and we were in Kobani, which is in the, the Kurdish capital in the north, um, mostly supporting an emergency department with a, a small surgical unit. Um, very complex politically. Um, I think it still is in that area and, um, it's probably the most complex context I've ever been in. Um, we had a couple of, yeah, it was, there were a lot of very difficult moments on that mission, even though it was so very short, it was an incredibly intense one, but from a human, uh, perspective, I think it was probably the one that, And and from the team uh, that I was with, it was probably the one I enjoyed the most in terms of the the kind of team members that I was with, just probably because it was so intense. You know, we we became very close very quickly, and I think we did a lot of good work. Um, And then, yeah, I've been in Gaza since February of this year. So I'm here for one more month after this, and I should be starting back up in the NHS in August for my last two years as an A&E registrar before I finish.
1: Um, I think we're just gonna have to pick two or three but there's there is a whole raft of stuff there um so let's you know what I want to i i think concentrate on is one imagine that we're talking to um somebody who would like to emulate your career sort of what your tips to them would be what um what you what advice you would give to your twenty year old self um it's the relevancy and the the skills that doing humanitarian extreme medicine expedition medicine gives to you as a clinician that then is taken back to your everyday clinical life and what makes you a better doctor because there is so much in that introduction I'd like to highlight as an illustration to people that actually and I think they it seems quite glamorous looking from the outside I know looking when people have talked about my expedition career and you know when people talk about expedition it sounds very glamorous you're going to exciting places you are with generally very cool people doing doing incredible stuff but actually the reality of course is much more mundane it's much tougher at times you feel a much greater sense of isolation that which comes as a surprise to a lot of people when you're in the immediacy of the situation you can peer group review with the people around you how do you or are you able to leave that issue there or do you bring it with you how do you deal with that issue when you're by yourself, and when actually, when you're not so busy, and your mind has that opportunity to spin around, sometimes, uh, you know, something that which is quite difficult.
0: I mean, that's a really good question, Mark, and I think I'm still, I'm still learning. I think uh, it's something that I'm still working on, and I think it's something that you continue to develop throughout your career, whether it's, you know, in a kind of well-organized healthcare service where things can also go wrong sometimes, or whether it's in a really challenging environment, which is. Really pushing you to the limits of your comfort zones and really pushing you physically and psychologically emotionally all those things I think really important is when you mentioned already is peer support so it's the you know your team who are on the ground with you at the time there sometimes will be differences of opinion but I think being able to talk them through with the people there and really kind of brainstorm things and try and digest it in the moment like the kind of hot debrief I think that's really important because it helps you to kind of tackle some of the, those initial Feelings that you have head on, but I think you're right. As time goes on, and you let you let you let it things cool down a bit. There's other questions that will come up, and you need to be able to have a way to ask those questions and, and 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 sort of verbalize them. I think externalize them because if you continually internalize that, it does have an impact on you, and I think it does it does change you. And I I think that's important to, to realize that too. Because if you're going to go into this line of work, you have to you have to I think. It takes a certain type of person because you have to understand that you're not going to, you will always be tested, right? And You'll be tested in any healthcare environment, certainly. And it just is a tough place to work as well. You know, people also see difficult things and burnout is something that happens there too. But I think that one thing that MSF certainly has gotten quite a bit better at over the years is... Um, offering psychological support to their staff. And anybody who comes back from a war zone has to do a debrief with the psychological cell. So you speak to a psychologist when you come back and you discuss your you discuss the mission and any kind of particular issues that came up from that. MSF UK then also has an interesting uh, system where they have a sort of volunteer network so that somebody who is experienced MSF but is currently based in the UK but has field experience and knows a bit about what that feels like They'll give you a call maybe a month or so after you're back home and just do a pulse check and say, hey, how are you? Do you want to talk about it? Like, tell me, tell me your experiences. And the nice thing about that is that you're not forced to. You can say, no, thank you. That's okay." But or, you know, don't I don't want to talk now, but maybe call me again next month. And the nice thing is that, you know, sometimes your own friends and family are not the best people to talk to because you come back from a mission. Occasionally, the question they'll ask is, oh, how was your trip? Like, Guys, it wasn't a holiday. <laughs> and, and that's, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, or, and you also don't want to be the, the killjoy at the party who's like, oh, and this one time when I was in Syria or, oh, and this one time when I was yeah. in Bungie. And I know that, um, that that's a risk because you wanted so much tell people about these experiences that you've had. People have a very finite attention span for that. You know, it's only certain types of people that will be interested. And eventually, you also need to be careful that you don't also judge the people around you for not having been through the same hard stuff that yeah. you have. It's a bit like that, like the there's a well-researched um, experiences from the military as well. You know, that kind of uh, post-traumatic stress sort of when you come back from being on tour somewhere i mean humanitarian work is not so dissimilar similar because you're also in a pretty tough environment you might be seeing high mortality rates because of something like Ebola or another type of um, pandemic it could be because of you know trauma injuries from war it could be just that the 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 sort of living circumstances that you're yourself in are really challenging you know when i was in Bungie, there was 20 of us living in a hospital corridor with two two showers and four toilets i mean that's not easy and it's loud all the time and everybody always knows your business um so you know it's 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 about knowing how to kind of who to talk to how to debrief that and 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 not judge other people for not having been through those things really well it's about knowing how to kind of who to talk to how to debrief that and 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 not judge other people for not having been through those things really well
1: you cross the border or you travel uh, on a plane, home, and then all of a sudden your reality is so completely different to what it was. Sometimes even just an hour before, and that's always taken taken me by surprise. And and I can I can understand, especially when you guys are coming back from a huma- humanitarian mission, and when you know tr- uh, people are coming back from a conflict zone. You know, you bring that experience. You haven't de de escalated your mind, thing. you're still in that experience. But actually, you're shopping in Tesco's in the middle of in the middle of London, you know, it can be extremely surreal, and it's not surprising some people find themselves off kilter. To be honest,
0: yeah, I actually think that that kind of reverse culture shock is sometimes even more—I was going to say frappe, but that's French. <laughs> it's even more striking in a way than like when you first arrive. Like, so when you—you know—for example, when you step off the plane in Central Africa, right, the heat hits you like a wall. You know, you step out the plane, it's like, okay, I'm you here, and you start well, sweating. Oh, spine. you smell the earth and like everything is a bit different. Mosquitoes are there and they're chewing on your ankles and you're standing in this long passport queue and you're kind of sweating from everywhere. (laughs) And, And you're kind of, you know, but you sort of think, okay, well, this is kind of part of the excitement. It's that exotic thing. And then when you come home, You know, and also you've you've been a kind of exotic creature where you've been. Like here, I can't go out in the street without having kids following me and like people are, you know, saying, Hello, how are you? What's your name? What's your country? Eventually they'll say I love you, then they'll maybe say fuck you, and then they'll maybe say (laughs) things like, Oh, corona, corona, corona. And like that's about, you know, the extent of the English they know. So you know, I, I'm getting you having to get used to sort of being like a local celebrity because I look very different and that attracts attention, even if I'm culturally aware in the way that I dress when I go outside. Right. Then, you know, you come home, you go to the supermarket, nobody cares who you are. No, yeah. you don't look any different. Nobody's going to look at you. And that's a really weird thing. And you, you think what's wrong. And suddenly you're struck because you've got more than one choice of toothpaste. And you're just like, I don't know how to do this. How do I choose my toothpaste?
1: And it's, it's when they say, so what, what have you done recently? And you're actually think you slip, and you tell them what you've been doing. And they say, are you sure you want these peaches or do you want those? And it's like, you no, know, you've completely, you completely missed what we're talking about here. Um, yeah. But, I mean, along with the cases that might stay and haunt you, which every big clinician will have, and also the the difficulty of operating in the environment that you're in, that also, and I think this must be the reason why why you do it. It's also remarkably rewarding. Um, I mean, are there any particular cases or, or individuals that stay in your mind as being the moment you think, you know, cracky? That's why I do what I do.
0: There's so many. It's hard to choose from. Um, and I, yeah. So one that was quite dramatic, and I was, I was forever in the day be just so impressed by our surgeons and also just by. This patient's—I don't know—physiology and anatomy. How he managed to survive it, I, I don't know. He's a young guy in Bungie who I, I was actually in the process of doing an interview. So I was, you know, not in the emergency department. I was interviewing some new doctors to come and join our team, and I kept getting phone calls from the AME nurse supervisor. And I thought, why does he keep calling me? And eventually. He, he arrived at the door and he knocked on the door and he opened the door and he said, Dr. Aaron, I'm really sorry, but can you please come to the emergency department? I said, Cyril, is it really an emergency? And he said, it's an emergency. Are we running? He said, we probably should. I said, okay, off we go. So we, we ran down to the A&E department and there was a guy lying on, on the trolley with the, with the team effectively standing around him in a semicircle just looking at him going like, what do we do? And... this young lad, I mean, he was sweating and he was sort of looking up at me and he had, all he had was a couple of sterile swabs across his chest like this. And he had a a blood pressure cuff on his arm and some, a nurse that was just sticking an IV line in them. And I stuck on a pair of gloves and I went over and I, I said hello to him. He was chatting to me, you know, so he was mentating and his airway was okay, but I knew he had something going on with his chest and I lifted up these swabs and he had a massive open injury on his chest and I could see his lung and I could see his heart he wasn't bleeding particularly much but he had basically been on a motorbike and gone into a pothole and then just like smashed down onto the handlebar so he had like a crush injury to his chest here so his ribs are all broken apart yeah. here it was a mess and so I radioed up to you know I had some analgesia for him some some pain relief and some some medications and I, I said right we need, we need to get him up to the operating room. And I, I, I radioed up to the operating theater and I said to the surgeon, this old French boy called Bernard, Bernard, whatever you've got going on just now, it needs to end because this <laughs> takes way more priority. And um, the I remember the stretcher bearer said to me, great, we're going to go up because our, our OR our operating room was three floors up from the emergency room but the elevator didn't work so we had these burly big guys in orange jumpsuits who were, kind of looks like something out of like black and orange is the new black it's quite funny yeah yeah and they were they were the guys who would be who would carry our patients up and down the to the wards and so on so they were going to carry this guy up the stairs to the OT and they looked at me and said what way should we go head first or feet first I said whatever way is fastest just get him up there <laughs> And they operated and um, Bernard said to me afterwards, very interesting. I don't know uh, if you know of um, David Knott. Yeah, of course. He's a war surgeon, very famous. Yeah, so he runs this um, course for, yeah, and he runs this course for surgeons. To do like you know different types of surgery for people going to war zones. If because our Bernard, lovely man that he is, he's a colorectal surgeon, so you know, chest and heart and th- cardiothoracics that's not his forte, but he had done this course, so he's like, Okay, well, I've got some skills, let's I've learned some things from this course, let's go for it. And the amazing thing was, this young lads like they washed it all out, tidied them up, managed to close it over. Luckily, there was no injury to the actual heart or lung. Um, they stuck in a chest drain because obviously he had a you know, collapsed lung there. and about a week later, the drain came out, he was up and about walking around, he was okay. And he went home and he like, Incredible. he was okay. And I just, I just love that, you know, and he he left with the, he was so pleased. He left with a big smile on his face and he was like, oh, do you remember that day I came to the emergency department and you guys all looked so scared. It's like, I don't know who was more scared of me to be honest. <laughs>
1: Remarkable. Um,
0: yeah, quite an amazing guy.
1: And that is what keeps you doing what you do, isn't it? It's the, uh, yeah being able to make a difference to people's lives who otherwise would have either lost them or would be severely impacted by by healthcare issues definitely um definitely if you were now this i guess this is this is a two-part question but it can also be a one part depending on how you want to answer it you know what would you have said to your 20 year old self in terms of now, where you are now, if you could have done some something when you were 20 that would put you in a better position or you felt would have been something, some skills you would have liked to have gained earlier. Or what would you say to somebody who wants to, who's a early stage medic wanting to go into humanitarian medicine? Now, what skills and experience should they gather around themselves to make them better prepared to do the work that you do?
0: Okay, so... Um... First of all, I want to just say that MSF is a big organization and they don't just employ medics and without the, so for anybody who's non-medical out there, there are also posts for you potentially, you know, I couldn't do the work I do without the logistics team that brings the supply of all the kit and all the stuff and the cold chain and the pharmacists and the pharmacy and everything that goes around it, our admin teams who Make sure that, you know, we're employing people who are working with us because 80% of our staff are going to be local staff. You know, we're not we're not staffing these programs um, with the majority of people we're bringing from an international pool. So we are really you know helping to, to employ people locally where we are. So that's really important. Um, and there's lots of different kind of backgrounds that you can have to come into it from that point of view. So I think that's something that's quite interesting. If you're going to come in as a medic, it doesn't really matter what your specialty area is going to be. We have obviously a need for certain specialties in particular. So pediatrics, um, infectious diseases, is very good background, Um, surgeons, obstetricians, gynecologists, anesthetists, emergency medicine, but also general practitioners and people who are essentially generalists, internal medicine, whatever. What I would say is that if you're going to do this kind of work, you really need to go at a point in your career where you feel really quite autonomous and you're happy to deal with some, you know, emergency situations. And I'd say that you should wait at least a couple of years after your FY2, so that your second year of training in the UK uh, or whatever your equivalent is, if you're in another healthcare system, um, get get at least, I'd say, a year of emergency medicine under your belt, because that will help you to deal with sort of the unknown a little bit, you know, You don't have a list of patients where you know what's going to come in the door. It can be a little bit of anything. And that's something that's also helpful skill to have is just being a bit on your toes and being able to be quite reactive. I think, um, you know, mostly the medical staff now, they do ask as a prerequisite for you to have some uh, training in tropical medicine. So the Diploma of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene is a good starting point. Again, if you're in the UK, there are other alternatives and there are equivalences that you can look at according to where you are locally. Um, And I would definitely look at that because it's it's I think it's now a prerequisite. Having another language is useful. It is not a prerequisite, but it is useful. And certainly the ones that they would focus on would be um, French, Arabic, Spanish. Um, Russian is useful as well, because we have quite a lot of programs in uh, some of the Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, those areas. Um, So that, that those things are absolutely helpful. What MSF will look for are people who are not only skilled in the medicine that they're going to be. Um, practicing but it's also about your leadership skills your people skills and your ability to survive in areas that are pretty different from the ones that you've been at and they will ask for you to kind of demonstrate that and whether that's because you've done some expedition work for example which can very well prepare you for that or whether it's because you've done some voluntary work or you've traveled and stayed in um, other parts of the world which are quite different from home those are things that are that are important because you need to understand that how do you react when you're pushed and how do you react when you're out of your comfort zone and can you manage to be away from home and family and maybe where the communication obviously it's easier now because most places have wi-fi but still there are some parts of the world msf operates where you may still only have a sat phone right and so it's only going to be once a week if that you can upload and download messages through the through the satellite phone and and that's going to be your contact so You know, the other thing, you know, for me here in Gaza, I know that family and friends have been sending packages, and normally they would be kind of shepherded over here by an expat who's coming into the field. But because Gaza's been quite shut down since the COVID pandemic, it's quite difficult to get access at the best of times. Now it's even harder. And so as a result, we haven't had as many people coming in. So nobody's had any mail, and we haven't had any new expats really arrived for a while. So, you know, that's that's something to keep in mind too, you know, your the contact with your loved ones and like, you know, home comforts that people might normally find you that they, they may not always get there. Um, so, you know, those, those are, those are, I think things other than medicine. So, yeah, I, I think certainly if you're as a status, you're in the UK system, finish your core training in whatever it is that you're doing, whether it's surgery, whether it's, uh, your acute care, you know, specialties, uh, or whether it's you know, your core medicine, um, and then think about going after that. But if, that's a good—that's a good kind of time to go because you've—you've done—you've done a couple of exams and you're kind of more on top of things. And MSF will also ask you to have done some of the trauma courses, so advanced trauma life support, your advanced medical life support. If you're going to be working with children, you know, pediatric life support. That's all helpful.
1: And I'm not trying to plug our own conference here, but also attending events where there are other humanitarian medics, um, like the WEM conference, where you can learn from. Yeah. Their experiences, but also share networks and opportunities. I think it's you know it's a good step forward for for you know younger medics.
0: I think I mean I'll I'll plug your WEM conference for you then, Mark. <laughs> I would say I I went as a participant to the WEM conference. I think the first year it was running, and I found it incredibly inspiring. And this is even before I think I I went with MSF. And I think it's it's an amazing event because it really helps to showcase the breadth of what medicine can offer you as a career that's outside of a hospital or a clinic in a comfortable healthcare setting. And I think that if that's something that you're interested in doing, coming and speaking to the people who've been there and who have done that is a really helpful thing because you can ask all your burning questions about how you get involved, but you can also ask the harder questions because most of the people who speak at this conference are really happy and open to talk about not just the But also the things that are harder and more mundane, you will find some really interesting people who've done some really unusual things. And people are not afraid to tell you, and they're really usually happy to share the details. You know, realistically, I'll tell you, okay, I'm living and working in Gaza right now. And all my colleagues at home are saying to me, oh, be safe. I'm thinking... I'm probably more safe than any of you guys are right now. One, we have no community transmission of COVID as of yet. All the cases we've had have been found in quarantine. And so far, there's only been one death. And it was a very elderly lady. Secondly, um, because of the COVID epidemic, politically, things are a a bit calmer and more stable here because the government does not want things to explode and go crazy. So right now, there's not been lots of rocket fire and drones and violence and so on. So really, it's a very, touch would have stayed that way, but it's a pretty calm time. And my everyday job really is a management job where I have a rota that I organize and I ensure that our clinics are well staffed and running and that, you know, there's there's no kind of hiccups that go on in the in the day to day activities with our burns patients and our trauma patients um, and anything else that comes our way. You know, so it's it's not that kind of, wow, it's so sexy to work with humanitarian medicine. In some ways, it's just another job. But it's just that the context that you're in that's like a little bit different so I think I think that's the nice thing about these conferences is you meet people who've done these things but they they'll really tell you what it is like they'll tell you how it is
1: I think it's the reality it's stripping away the the glamour and and make and making people aware of what the reality is which is which is no less stimulating an in interest once that glamour has been taken away but it is the reality um, and so it's yeah. educating people about what it is they're letting themselves in for but because we you don't want to attract people to this discipline who aren't going to be happy doing it you want the people who are comfortable doing it so
0: um absolutely yeah and you know people people will there there are sometimes mismatches also with msf i've worked with people in the field as well who've i've come across and i just think gosh why are you doing this you know and sometimes you know people do things for different reasons of course and it's not always a about and I'll put my hands up, right? Yes, there's this sort of altruistic, I love to help other people, I love to share my skills, I love to teach. So, but it's that again, it's me saying, I love to share my skills, I love to teach, I love to travel. It's it's also quite selfish. And in many ways, we kind of do it for ourselves. You know, even though you are giving a lot and you know, you come away from an experience like this and you are knackered because it's not just the long hours that you're working, even if you do get a weekend. So, you know, hey, it's Friday today because I'm in Gaza, it's my holiday. Um, you, do get, you, get, you do get a bit of time off, but, you know, realistically, it is, it is exhausting and you, do, you are giving, 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 but at the same time, like you also get so much from that experience yourself. So, I mean, it, and it's not about having the kind of um, saving the world, kind of idea because I'm, look, let's be honest here. I'm not right. I'm really not. I'm just one other person and I'm part of a team here and we're working hard and we're doing a good job with the work we do, but I am just one person. And actually the GP doctors I work with here, they're the real heroes, right? Some, one of my doctors, he's lived through five wars, right? Cause he studied in Serbia and then he came here. <laughs> so like for me, and he's one of the smartest people I've ever worked with. Like he's, he's a brilliant doctor. He is so calm and so cool, no matter what, and sometimes I lose my rag, right I mean you be realistic about where your limits are and so on, fine, yeah, that's important, but at the same time, like I have so much respect for my staff here, I really do because they're they're the ones who really are you know living and uh training and working in an environment that doesn't allow them really access out very easily to go and get better experience and training and so on, and yet they're they're such a smart group of people. One guy's just um, applied for an, a Fulbright scholarship and I saw his application form and I was blown away. I just said to him, Dr. this is amazing. You are such a star. Like this is, you, you are going to have a glowing career regardless of whether you get this scholarship, but even like whatever I can do to help you do that, I will write you the most glowing reference because you deserve it, man. You know, you're you're a really good guy. You're a good doctor. You're a good clinician. And I think that if you get this opportunity, you're going to go really far. So go. And that, that's that's the thing that I love the most about it. But again, it, it's something I get back from it. You know, I, I think you need to be honest
1: about it. I don't think there's any reason to hide that, isn't it? It is. It is at the end of the day an exchange, and it's what makes you capable and um, and happy to operate in those type of conditions. Because also, as you said you're you're getting something back yourself you're getting uh, and then giving yourself a sense of purpose and i don't think there's anything wrong with being quite open
0: i think it's an, having a sense of purpose is probably one of the important things for the human experience and mind i think people i think it's one of the biggest causes of depression is when you lose your sense of purpose absolutely. and i think you can absolutely determine and define what that is for yourself and it doesn't have to be lofty you know, your sense of purpose could be that you are going to mow the lawn today and that is your purpose of this day, right? And that's fine. But it can also be that you really want to achieve something really big. And, you know, you invest in that, you throw time and energy and resources sometimes at doing that, but then the rewards that you get back from that are huge. And whether that's, you know, spending a bit of extra time with a kid and their family to explain why it's so important to have, you know, good nutrition and so, you know, follow follow the dressing protocols for a bad burn and make sure that they get a skin graft. And, and working through the kind of cultural barriers that exist. Here, for example, people are really afraid to let their, their their daughters have a skin graft because they're afraid of increasing the scar tissue because of the donor site. So we, we've, we've spent a lot of time with our health promotion team, for example, just like developing patient information leaflets, which for some of the population who are illiterate has to be very pictorial, um, but also has some writing. You know, and it's just like, that time that you spend with with these resources that you create and then the time that you physically spend with the family, like that's that's so important, you know, but you get a better result that way and you get something back because you know that you've done a really good job when they finally accept that. And then you see that the result afterwards is that somebody who's got a beautiful skin graft and they've healed really, really well and you get to discharge them from the clinic at the end of the day and they're going to have a normal, healthy, happy life. That's why we do it.
1: And what are your plans for... What are you doing next? Where are you headed to after Gaza? Or you know, what kind of what's your aspiration? Where are you headed?
0: That is the ultimate question. Where I can fucking find an easy answer for that. <laughs> I pay a lot of money. Um, I mean, I think that in the short term, short term being the two years, I've still got two years of my NHS training left to finish my A and E jobs. Um so I'll be going back to Glasgow in August and uh, finishing up those that my two-year contracts. I don't think my boss would be very happy if I asked him for more timeouts, although my boss here <laughs> keeps on telling me, oh, but you're coming back, you know, in a couple months' time. We'll need you back for when COVID really hits hard. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I... I think what I would love is uh, if, if I don't really know where I'm going to be long term, if it is staying in the UK, what I would like to do is for future doctors in training, try and establish a way that we can help those doctors who go and do this kind of work, get that recognized towards their training. You know, it's ridiculous that when I go back, I'm going to have to put together some kind of tick box management portfolio when actually all I've been doing for the last four months on this job and my previous missions as well, a huge component of that is is management. It's it's risk assessment. It's having a global view of an operation at an operational level to see what it is that we want to achieve here. What it is that we're you know how are we how are we structuring the healthcare you know um, provision that we want to put in place. What what is our goal here? What is what are the outcomes that we're achieving here? How do you measure those outcomes? It's about quality improvement. It's about ongoing audit processes. It's about ongoing teaching and training. One of the beautiful things that here that I've really um, been inspired by and I hope to take forward with me as well, is that um, with a team for the first time ever, MSF is doing um, sort of telemedicine based POCUS, which is point of care ultrasound training with the doctors here in Gaza. So I'm trained in EFAST, which is the uh, kind of focused assessment of uh, ultrasound in trauma. but we're adding on components because we have a very interesting cohort of patients here with osteomyelitis. And so they're looking at, we're looking at soft tissue scans to look at how, how can you determine how reactive or uh, responsive the disease is according to the treatment it's had from surgery and antibiotics. Um, adding on cardiovascular and lung components as well, so that if ever our team is working in a kind of COVID center, which is one of the things that we're setting up here, um, they can use ultrasound as a tool also to look at disease progression in patients with you know without necessarily needing to try and get CT scans for everybody because that's not going to be possible here, right? So the that's a cool thing. You know, we're we're doing this whole POCUS training program here. And that's something I want to hopefully continue with when I go back home. And it's something I've I've learned from a lot. And then being uh, being allowed to then teach that on to other people is, is just a really beautiful thing. And I've got a lot of support from a doctor in New York, another one in Barcelona, there's one in Germany. Um, so, you know, video call on WhatsApp with them. And we have a telemedicine platform that we're using. It's brilliant. You know, using technology um, to kind of move forward and help people in, in places like Gaza where you can't necessarily go out and get education. I think that's a, that's the way forward. It's... It's a really nice thing um, to be able to, to do for them.
1: And I think um, you know the the COVID pandemic has pushed a lot of that technology and the and um, changed the way that people sure. are working and the, and it's accelerated that whole progression. You know certainly from the website side we found that and I imagine on on a much bigger scale that's also the case. Yeah. Um, it would be great to sort of expand on this in, in, in a lot more detail when we do the WEM conference. Now, we don't know whether that's going to be a physical or a digital conference yet. We've yet to decide. Um, but it would be great to get you back for that in November. Uh, no, end of October, to talk more about your experiences and inspire even more people to, to do the type of medicine that you're doing. But it's been fascinating to learn more about your personal background and, and the work that you're doing at the moment in Gaza. Um, and to hear your stories from all over the world in terms of the missions that you've done and so thank you for giving us the time today and you know wishing you you know great further stay in Gaza um, I've never been in fact I have been to Gaza but I spent a lot of time in that area and I know how remarkable the people are there so I imagine yeah. you, know, you will be wanting to go back but thank you very much for your time today and it's been great.